0: This is The Hidden Why Podcast, episode 932, my second interview with Donald Robinson, talking about the stoic life of Marcus Aurelius. Enjoy. All right, Donald, welcome to The Hidden Why Podcast, uh, second time here. Thank you for coming on.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back again.
0: You're um, sort of, um, you just uh, shared with me your your current experience um, living in Canada and uh, just tracking through B&B properties or... or Airbnb properties, I suppose, yeah. um, must be um, kind of cool but maybe kind of uh, frustrating after a while, I'm not sure.
1: There's pros and cons to it, like everything else. Uh, I, I kind of like the nomad lifestyle a bit. It's kind of modern. I suppose someone told me recently that I'm a digital nomad, which is not a term that I'd even heard before, but I guess that is what I am. I travel around and I work online and I quite enjoy doing that. Yeah. Um, but also, I was going to say the time that we're living in, one of the things that that interests me about it is i've been writing about marcus aurelius as you know mm. and my, my other big interest is socrates and two of the biggest pandemics in the in ancient history happened to have been during the lifetimes of both marcus aurelius and socrates they both lived through plagues or pandemics uh, or major epidemics and uh, and That's that cool. plays a that plays a big part in their both of their life stories. So, once they, when the current pandemic happened, uh, on many many levels, it suddenly seemed very resonant with me. You know, it reminded me of a lot of things I've been reading about.
0: Yeah, there you go. Um, so some relative times there. What? Um, so I mean, we spoke um, last year, about a year ago, and we we spoke about your your book um, back then, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Uh, which is a fantastic read. I actually reviewed it on my podcast. So for those listening out there and wanting to have a glimpse, um, I do a review of books um, less regularly now, but um, that's eight, episode 815, so you can have a, a listen to that. But a fantastic book and, and a really good uh, glimpse into the life of Marcus Aurelius and, and the Stoic, um, Stoic philosophies. And last time you came on, we, we talked about Stoicism and also cognitive um, therapy and behavioral therapy. Um, which you're sort of into as well, and we sort of blended the conversation into two. Um, and now you, you mentioned that you're um, actually creating a um, a comic for for Marcus's yeah, story.
1: A graphic novel. Is a Graphic a, novel. A term that we prefer these days, but or, you know, it's basically a big comic for grown-ups, and hmm. uh, it's about the life story of Marcus. Aurelius so really, it's in like a lot of things, like a lot of the best ideas. I just kind of stumbled into it pretty much completely by chance. And, uh, how did you ridden? stumble
0: into to this by chance? Like It sounds like <laughs> it must be some sort of purposeful intent. With no, the, uh,
1: like, I can tell you the little, there's a little story behind mm-hmm. it. You know, it might be interesting because I, I speak to so many people that try to get into doing different things and they don't know yeah. how to get started. So Sometimes it helps to say this is how it happened. Um, so a guy messaged me on Facebook, an artist who lives in Portugal called Z Nuno Fraga. And he showed me that he had been writing a a graphic novel about uh, Aristophanes' play, The Assembly Women. It's an ancient Greek uh, satire. And I read it and I thought it was kind of interesting. And then I forgot about it and ignored it for about six months, I think. And then out of the blue, one day I was probably kind of lying, staring into space in bed one morning. And I thought, maybe I should message that guy again, you know. And ask him about doing a little web comic or something. So I got Z to do three little web comics about Marcus Aurelius to kind of promote my courses and whatnot, just as a bit of an experiment. And uh, then, cut a long story short, I was speaking at a conference in London, and I got some panels printed. And it's also it was a bit of a coincidence that I ended up doing that. I hadn't really planned to do that; it happened by chance. It was just because I couldn't get other printing done. So I printed these panels. I did this gicle printing thing, a sort of fine art, like high-quality printing framed and whatnot. And I, I put them out on display, and uh, a guy came up to me, and he was a senior editor for a major publisher. And that, at that point, I realized that I'd completely forgotten that at these conferences, there are often people that work in the publishing industry. And it had never occurred to me that this was quite a clever strategy that I'd done by accident. And uh, so somebody in the publishing industry saw these little samples. They weren't even meant to be samples. Hmm. And he said, have you got more of these? So I showed them on my phone and we got talking about it. And uh, we got talking about this idea and ended up I was already under contract to a publisher, McMillan. And they ended up being the ones that, that went forward with a different publisher and so we you know we put the idea together we did some drafts and uh, we're in the middle of doing it now like it's quite a major project uh We've got a big publisher behind it, so it looks like it's going yeah, to do nice. pretty well. But I didn't know anything about graphic novels before. and you know, Luckily, I did read a lot of comics when I was a teenager, and then since then I haven't really bothered much. But I did a bit of a crash course. There are a surprising number of books out there about how to write a graphic novel. So I read a bunch of them, and I started reading lots of examples of graphic novels and speaking to people that work in comic shops. And so we've finished all the drafts now. And I suppose one of the things I, I could say about how it relates to the philosophy and the life mm. of Marcus Aurelius is that I'll tell you something odd about the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Right? The Meditations is the book that Marcus Aurelius wrote.
0: I've and got it here uh, right in front of me, and it's bloody difficult it's, to read.
1: <laughs> well, it's it's one of the most popular. You must have an older translation. I bet. Oh, do you? Do you have like a? Do you know who the translator is?
0: Um, well, Does I it say a couple somewhere like, by Mark Aurelius. Introduction. I don't actually. It doesn't say black and white classics.
1: The two, the two main modern translations are by Gregory Hayes and Robin Hard, and there's a couple of other ones. So I often people read older translations that were done in the Victorian era, and that can make it a little bit harder. To read. So, one. one Maybe that's what
0: advice, I'm reading. Hmm.
1: Yeah, a piece of advice I'd give is if people find it a bit hard going, then try and look for one of the, the more recent translations because they're usually a little bit more accessible. Right. But it's an incredibly popular book. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons I think that people like it, there's something that there are a number of odd things with the way that book is written. And one of them is that Marcus very seldom really says much, or he says surprisingly little, um, about the specific events that he's facing. So I'll give you an example. Hmm. One of the most widely quoted passages in that book is at the beginning of book two, or chapter two, and it says, every morning when I awaken, uh, when you awaken, tell yourself, today you're going to meet ungrateful people, jealous people, liars, traitors, you know, and he tells himself to prepare in advance for adversity, for a meeting um, with these people that are going to be difficult to deal with. So it doesn't come as a big shock yeah. or a big surprise to him, so he can take it in his stride. And everyone knows that passage; it's very widely quoted. But the odd thing about it is, well, I think when you read it, you think, "Oh, my mother-in-law is a bit like that," or you think, "My boss at work, he's uh, that, he's one of these characters I'm going to have to be able to deal with." You know, yeah. you think about it on a more mundane level, but it's striking that he doesn't kind of. Give any hint that he's talking about specific people, and you um, you naturally project yourself into it because it's a little bit anonymous, and you forget that he was facing shortly after that a civil war and he was in the middle of fighting a, a huge war in command of 140,000 men along the Danube and you're protecting yeah. him against a, a massive invasion. So he's dealing with these world historic betrayals and yet when you read the meditations, he could just be talking about a, a you know a quarrel he's had with his, his missus or his mother-in-law or something like that. You know, It seems kind of more mundane and more down to earth because he leaves all these historical details out
0: so, so that's, the, that's just the nature of his writing too. And, and yeah. I mean, as a writer yourself, I mean, I, I try to write some of my thoughts and my own personal philosophies, I suppose, but I'm always putting myself into it. Um, and it's incredibly difficult to take yourself out of it to make it more relatable to others.
1: And there's, there's pros and cons to doing it. But, you know, I think part of the appeal is that when we read it, it leaves space mm. for us to then step into it and yeah. project project our, our own Issues into what he's describing—it's abstract enough that it can fit into. So it's timeless. It makes it timeless. He wrote it nearly two thousand years well, ago, and right. people can read it today and think, "Oh, this just reminds me of my boss at work," you know, or "This is, you know, this is exactly the problem I've got to deal with now," because he's put it in these vague terms. But that leaves the door wide open then to say, "Well, what happens?" There's a story to be told if we then look at the situation in which he was writing that. And we take the way I sometimes put it is we have several... We know a lot about Marcus Aurelius because he was a big deal back in the day. So we have... We know more about him than we know about most ancient philosophers because he Mm. was an emperor. So we have at least three major surviving histories of his reign and we have a bunch of archaeological evidence and stuff. So we know more about him. Like Some historical figures, some philosophers, we know virtually nothing about. But Marcus, we know a lot about. So we have this external story about his reign and then we have this internal story about his emotional or psychological or spiritual journey and what I wanted to do was to try and weave these two things back together again and say well what if we imagine that when he says every morning you wake up prepare yourself to deal with traitors and meddlers and liars and we imagine that he's saying that to himself in this situation where he's facing people that are breaking peace treaties and instigating civil wars against him. And now that changes the kind of significance of some of the events in his life. Mm. And it also allows us to kind of understand in a more concrete way some of the things that he was battling with internally in in the meditations. So I tried to do that in in the book, but in the graphic novel, it really... Um, when you try to actually visualise things on the screen or on the page, I think it surprised me how much it changes the the, the, the connotation and the meaning. One of the things actually I realised to add the did, visuals
0: with the story
1: wasn't the, the visuals in? Hmm. Yeah, it, the way you interpret the events.
0: It's amazing, it a, another...
1: a, a bit different. It changes everything a bit. You go, oh, I see it now. I see why he would react that way. You know, now I actually picture what he's just walked out of and what he's about to walk into. I understand why he would be saying that to himself more. But the other thing I hadn't realised is, that, you know, I, I, I was writing it's a kind of sword and sandals type thing. But when we try to visualise the events of Marcus's life, page in the middle of doing it, it suddenly dawned on me that, without question, chunks of the story are more like a horror story mm. and you know for a couple of different reasons so one the obvious reason is that we know Marcus lived through the Antonine Plague as I mentioned earlier so that killed 5 million people in the Roman Empire you know the pandemic that we are going through is small by comparison and the pandemic that he went through lasted at, at least a, a, a dozen years it lasted well over a decade and yeah. um, so it was, you know, like a different level from what we're facing at the moment. And uh, and also it was more visual. So we think it was smallpox. When people got the disease during his reign, they, you could really see it. Like their bodies were covered in sweeping sores and often they'd go blind or maybe lose fingers. Uh, some people, you know, some people were disabled as a result of it. So it was very in your face. Mm. And they said they were taking bodies out of Rome by the cartload, and uh, everywhere they would have been burning incense to try and kind of that was the best attempt to try and purify the air. Yeah. So the whole the whole ambience, the whole atmosphere of Rome changed. And then when you picture that on the page, you think, oh yeah, we know that. But then when you actually try and picture it, you think, wow, yeah, this went on for a long time. Like for over a decade, everywhere he went, he would mm. smell incense burning, and he would see dead bodies being carried out. You know, he'd see people with their faces scarred with pock marks from the plague and stuff, and people that have been blinded, begging for food. And so it was like he was, was like he was living through a horror movie. Mm. Um, and then when you imagine, then when you come back to going, okay, you know the stuff that he's writing in the meditations, and it seems like kind of it suddenly seems, you know like he, he's applying it to much more a much more devastating problem than we might think of at first. It, it's appealing to us because we can use it to deal with our more everyday mundane problems. Yeah, it's
0: transferable, um, isn't it? Hmm.
1: Yeah, but it's an inspiration in some respects when we think, oh, wow, when he says this, he's talking about dealing with something that's kind of off the scale. It reminds me of the inspiration that people get from Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. And partly that comes from the fact that they know... This guy was in Auschwitz, and so the things that he's saying have this kind of degree of credibility to them, you know, because he learned to apply these ideas in this very extreme situation but again with Marcus you don't really pick that up from reading the meditations itself but then when you really visualise where he was when he was writing it and what was going on around him it gives it that kind of added credibility you think oh wow he's not mucking about you know he was dealing with very very serious problems and like I say you know problems similar in some ways to the ones that we are currently facing but actually you know without question or you know even scarier you know even more severe
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it didn't have all the um, the comforts that we have right now, you know, as, as have, severe yeah. as it is for us today.
1: It didn't have Netflix. No. And it, didn't have, uh, it didn't have central heating and stuff like that. And But the scary well, thing Well, and doctors me, and
0: hospitals and, you know, all oh, yeah. the infrastructure that we have, which, um, yes, it's still going crazy and it's still very uncertain, unprecedented times, but, yeah, a lot to be oh, grateful they did, for.
1: They didn't even know what was causing it, you know. I mean, a lot of people in Rome... Would have, there were doctors who kind of you know, had more materialistic theories and would have thought mm. there's, there's something going on. They, I think they knew there was something going on with the air, but they had no, I, no concept of a virus. Yeah. Um, but they, uh, you know, a lot of them literally actually did just think it, they were being punished by the gods and that was their best attempt to kind of figure out what the hell was going on Um, so there was a lot of religious fanaticism as a result of it you know we know that from the histories that people were and, and I think the parallel with that today is you know it's part of the the bigger issue of conspiracy theories and stuff and kind of you know fake news and distorted information in the the media so there were you can imagine in rome there was a lot of gossip and a lot of speculation you know one of the big things was they're kind of trying to blame other countries that it might have come from and uh, blaming individuals for causing it you know kind of looking for a scapegoat to point the finger of blame at and and having kind of like uh, and people selling bogus remedies as well which i guess in a you Know, maybe is another thing that happens today in different forms so there were a lot of quacks and scoundrels trying to cash in yeah, on sure. it. Mm. it you know you get the feeling that you see similar things but in a different form a different version of the the same story happening yeah.
0: yeah yeah um yeah interesting stuff I, I mean yeah the the graphic novel or comic if you will um certainly that putting that visual behind anything, like I was listening the other day just to, um, takeouts, audio takeouts from movies and, mm-hmm. you know, movies that really had an impact on me, but listening to the audio, I was less impressed, you know, mm. um, it was amazing how that, that video footage really enhances, um, that cause without it, it was just like, Oh, this sounds bogus. like B grade sort of, you know, rubbish. Um, so it's interesting how that, that visual can add to the, the context and the, the, um, the story, I suppose, as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, this is a, I've been studying the histories and writing about Marx's life for a long time, and, you know, but as soon as we started to put it on the page and represent it visually, I suddenly made all sorts of connections, you mm. know, and think, think it changed the tone of a lot of the events in ways that I hadn't really envisaged before. So it's been a really fun um, exercise, and what I didn't realise as well, when we started off... I read some graphic novels about ancient Greece and ancient Rome. There aren't that many of them in that genre. Yeah. And I thought, well, some of them are kind of dull. Like Some of them are a bunch of guys in togas and sandals just standing around talking. And so I said right at the outset hmm. to our, our editor, you know, our, our publisher, we, we don't want loads of guys in togas just talking about philosophy. We want to make it, you know, to have more action going on. And I hadn't really realized until we started doing it that there's a a huge amount of really spectacular, epic stuff that's in the histories. I kind of knew it, but, you know, I hadn't really, I hadn't visualized it until we put it on the page. And I thought, wow, yeah, like there are so many aspects of his life that are on on a truly epic scale. It's hard to even, you know... It's hard to even visualize unless you take a real bird's eye view of them and mm. you know even things like the duration of the plague and the vastness of some of the battles um that were going on around him and, and things like that it's uh it's a very dramatic uh story actually and uh you know there's a lot of heightened emotions in the in the Roman court as well so um it, at first I thought is it going to be kind of boring a bunch of guys talking I thought and then I realized no it's the complete opposite you know his life is actually for a stoic who people think of as being you know very serene and so and his, his life is incredibly dramatic
0: yeah absolutely so do you feel that the um, the life he led um, added to his uh, I suppose it did to his philosophical perspectives or was it his philosophy that started and then helped him through the adversity he dealt with like, was there one before the other, or was it sort of a combination of both?
1: Oh, that's a, you could imagine I could spend all day talking about it. I'll give you the abbreviated that's interesting, answer to that question. Because hmm. um, there's a, a bunch of things we could say. Okay, so the first thing, which goes back a little bit further than you're implying, he had something bad happened when he was about three or four years old. Yeah. And that in itself is kind of interesting. So, you know, uh, I imagine it affected him for life. So his father died and we don't even know exactly why, um, but it's clear that his father died when he was a little boy, and I, it really does look like that had a psychological effect on him. And it also really transformed his life in a number of, of ways. It meant all sorts of domino effect. Like, so it meant he was, to a large extent, uh, then his mother had more influence over his upbringing than would be typical, perhaps. Mm. Um, You know, so other men were involved. But his mother seems to have loomed really large in his life. And luckily for Marcus, his mum seems to have been a really cool person. Um, She was like uh, one of these exceptional individuals. She was one of the wealthiest and most powerful women in Rome. But from Marcus's description of her, she was also an incredibly uh, cultured and educated woman. But she also like uh, there's a certain class of very wealthy people that are almost kind of aloof. From wealth, so Marcus said she she had very simple, old-fashioned values, and uh, she was very unlike other Roman nobles. She was she stood apart from the rest of Roman society, and she she preferred very kind of simple, plain living, like which is in, was in contrast to some of the trends in, in Rome at the time. And so we can see that this has really affected him. Like he has this kind of aloofness from from money. And, uh, and also, we can see him kind of latching on to a number of male role models. Hmm. And that kind of leads into the philosophy, because one of the guys that seems to become a, a father figure to him was a Stoic philosopher called Junius Rusticus, who's a, a Roman general and statesman and a Stoic philosopher who took Marcus under his wing and basically trained him and gave him a kind of... I'll tell you, in the meditations, Marcus actually says, uh, and just as an aside, when we first started doing stuff on stoicism and CBT, there were some kind of snooty classicists that said, you guys are just kind of taking stoicism and kind of trying to put a square peg into a round hole, you try and make it seem like modern psychotherapy. And that surprised me because it showed that they were kind of ignorant of the extent to which... Classical philosophy is completely pervaded with this therapeutic model or medical model. So in the meditations, at the beginning of the book, Marcus is talking about Junius Rusticus and he said, I'm grateful that Rusticus persuaded me that I needed therapy. And he uses the word therapeia in Greek, it just means therapy. Hmm. Like, so he says, Rustic has told me I needed psychological therapy, like Stoic therapy. They even use that word to describe it. In fact, Chrysippus, hmm. the third head of the Stoic school, yeah. wrote a book called On Therapeutics... So they, and they call it therapy of the psyche. They don't quite say psychotherapy, but they would say therapy of the mind or psyche. Mm. And so this this is not a modern idea. You know, they absolutely, you know, wrote books about psychotherapy. It was uh, very much uh, an explicit concept that they had. So Marcus latches on to this guy, and he had quite a relatively sheltered upbringing um, for a lot of it you know he lost his father and then there was a bit of turmoil some challenges but he lived at Rome in a a wealthy family so he wasn't exposed to that much danger but as soon as he became emperor Cassius Dio one of the main historians says that Marcus um, wasn't one of the most successful emperors in an external sense, but he admires him nevertheless as being one of the greatest emperors because he had to deal with so many catastrophes and setbacks and he did it with such kind of dignity and wisdom and strength of character. So yeah. some emperors are, are really lucky. You know, like a, a US president might you know, might, might be lucky with the economy they inherit, you know. And yeah, uh, some emperors mm. have a really easy time. His The predecessor, Antoninus Pius, his adoptive father, had a very famously peaceful reign. It went very smoothly. As soon as Marcus uh, took the throne, everything went crazy. So almost immediately, the Parthians invaded in the east of the empire, and that triggered a a war that lasted about five or six years. Um, And then straight after that, this plague happens. There are earthquakes... Uh, There's a famine, the River Tiber floods, which is a really serious problem, and then the the Germanic tribes are having a look at all of this chaos, and they 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 have a peace treaty with Rome along the Danube frontier, and uh, these kings uh, are chatting among themselves, and they sort of think, you know, the Romans are having a pretty hard time at the moment. Like if we were going to invade this is the time to do it. (laughs) So they they jumped at the opportunity and tens of thousands of them poured across the Danube uh, into the northern frontier provinces uh, and all the way across the Alps into northern Italy. And so the the Romans had this huge invasion in the the northern frontier to deal with at a time when their legionaries were dropping like flies from the plague. And Marcus spent like the rest of his uh, his period as emperor, away from most of it, the rest of it, anyway, away from Rome with the the legions, and he, he never had any military training whatsoever. He mm-hmm. was thrown into this situation of suddenly having to take command of this huge military campaign. He he'd never served any time in the military, so he was like a, a fish out of water. And then he had the civil war that he had to deal with. So you know, I crazy certainly uh, yeah, mm-hmm. crazy times. I certainly think that he he started learning stoicism early on yeah. and it was maybe triggered by the loss of his father and some other things that were going on around him, his desire to find a kind of direction in life and a father figure. But then almost-
0: it sounded like it seemed like more commonplace then to, you know, as a,
1: oh yeah
0: as a growing person to, to have someone as a, as a father figure or have someone that can give you that guidance in a philosophical yeah.
1: manner. Yeah. And, you know, the, I guess the prevailing culture at the time under the Emperor Hadrian um, was that uh, there were these guys called sophists um, who, who would educate young men and they would teach them oratory, public speaking skills. Uh, they would teach them rhetoric, speech writing. And they would teach them what we now call sophistication. They would teach them uh, about culture. Um, mm. But they didn't really teach them how to improve their character. It was all... About appearances, and so Hadrian okay. and the the other Romans wanted to educate young men, but it was you know much more like uh, much more about how you present yourself and uh, you know creating the appearance of being an intellectual and so on. And so Marcus went in a very di- what Marcus did was go in a radically different direction. Um, he said, "No, I, I do want a tutor, but I want I want one of these other guys. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna buck the trend and go for a complete a radically different." type of, of personal tutor um, you know and i'm going i'm going to opt for a, a stoic and the stoics were known for being much more plain speaking and much less ostentatious and so no, in some le- ways
0: less popular then
1: yeah there was con- it was controversial you know the the yeah. complaint was so you know they say a lot of people at rome at first were a bit freaked out because they were like uh, they quite liked the, the sort of celebrity culture that surrounded some emperors And uh, they like the Emperor to show off and dress fancy and put on big spectacular events for them and stuff. And they said, this, this, Marcus are really. And, uh, you know, he's he's quite serious. Like, you know, he's not as much fun as Hadrian was. Um, so it took them a while to warm to him. They were like, is he gonna start banning things? And he's gonna, you know, is he gonna is he gonna make us all, you know, eat porridge and like he's gonna ban the gladiatorial games and things like that? So Marcus had a bit of a PR problem at first. But eventually he really won their respect. Mm-hmm. And I think also when he took command of the legions, at first they thought, Who is this clown? You know, who is this bookworm that's never left Rome? You know, this, uh, this academic, um, this bureaucrat, they would have thought of him. Uh, this kind of sickly guy. And I, I think they would really have at first been as suspicious of him as a, a general. Um, but we can see that over the years... By the end of it, the legions under his command come to absolutely idolize him. So Mm. one of the the curious things about it is I think the way that he went from nothing in their eyes or like a fish out of water to clearly having won this absolute loyalty and respect from them. Uh, somehow or other you know there was something about his character that was slow burning but eventually it it won the the legions under his command over and they became unshakably loyal to him Mm. Um, but the the other thing I'd say that kind of explains the the question that you asked about how the philosophy developed so he was kind of set up in a way and then it's almost like Cassius Dio says it's almost like the the gods or the the universe wanted to test out his stoicism. They said, "Okay, your dad died, and you, you latched onto this for a direction in life. Let's see how good you are at doing this stoicism thing now. Let's have a let's have a few earthquakes. Like, let's flood the river. Let's have an invasion. Mm-hmm. Let's see how you deal with. You know, they wanted. It's almost like the universe wanted to test out his stoicism. Yeah. But I think this guy Genius Rustic. We believe that he died." round about 170 AD, give or take, yeah. a little bit. So we, we think his tutor died round about then. And it, I'm pretty certain that it's round about that time that Marcus began writing the meditations. So I have a theory, and this is speculative, but it's my little pet theory, that Marcus, once he went to the northern frontier, he didn't take his tutor with him, and he was his closest friend and ally that I'm certain he would have corresponded with him by letter, and that then when Rustic has died, Marcus would have thought, I'm going to carry on writing, but Hmm. I'm going to have to write to myself. And actually, the earliest manuscript of the Meditations, we, we now call it, modern editors have given it the name, the Meditations, but the earliest manuscript version of it has the title To Himself, so it's almost hmm. like he went from writing to his stoic mentor yeah. and then that guy died and Marcus thought I need to keep going I need to become my own mentor now I, I'm, a grown, I'm a grown man I need to become my own therapist so now yeah. I, I need to write to myself and in doing that I think there's even in the meditations there's little snippets of conversation and some of those quotes I wonder if what he's actually writing down are things that he remembers Rusticus having said to him
0: yeah, yeah. Well, it make sense. Or
1: arguments they've had. There's even snippets that seem like little arguments, and so I wonder if he's remembering when he was a, a teenager arguing with his mentor, and then kind of he's still chewing over how that conversation went and what he, what he could maybe have learned from it.
0: Do you think what What do you think his his practice looked like as his uh, time as the emperor? I mean, was it? Do you think it was a case where he he would just write? Um, you know, what he's experiencing um, in into a journal form or into a letter and then do that sort of on a daily basis or is it ad hoc? Like, how do you reckon that looked?
1: We know we've got a lot of fragments. I mean, the, the, one of the things about the meditations is that he says a lot in it um, about... He, he'll say every day, picture this to yourself or... Uh, frequently remind yourself or often tell yourself so he, the way he phrases it it's like he he's he really seems to be saying this is something I do every day or this is hmm. something I do yeah. whenever someone has an argument with me like so it, the way it's phrased sounds like a description of it's a regular, regular practice that he's engaged in right I mean like literally there are bits where he says I do this every morning and so like I th- I think he it, it I would assume that he did follow some sort of fairly consistent daily practice. And there seem to have been several components to it. And uh, I suspect that uh, a major part of that was writing stuff down. And I'll tell you, historians love this, right? We we also have, I mean, a lot of people that love Marcus Aurelius don't even realize that we have a bunch of other material that relates to him. They, they, they often don't know that we have... The histories. In fact, some of the people that kind of reviewed my book, there were a handful of them that got kind of annoyed and they were like, well, you've made up all these stories about Marcus Aurelius. And uh, they didn't realize that these are all stories that are taken from the Roman histories. Like, we have a, mm. a bunch of accounts of things that happened in his life because he was famous back in the day. But in the 19th century, um, an Italian scholar found a bunch of letters uh, between Marcus and his rhetoric tutor, a sophist, called Marcus Cornelius Fronto. So we also have a bunch of his private letters as well that he wrote before becoming emperor.
0: Hmm.
1: And also by a really cool quirk of fate, in one of those letters... So actually, most of the stuff in those letters is relatively boring, unless you're a real history nerd about it like I am, yeah. and every, every little phrase becomes significant. But a lot of it's kind of banal. Um. But there are one or two little things that are really enticing. And one of them is that Fronto says to him, and it's not a philosopher saying this, it's a sophist saying it. Fronto says to him that he should take pieces of philosophical wisdom or like really profound sayings and practice rephrasing them so that he gets exactly the right nuance by choosing Exactly the right word or the right metaphor to express an idea so that it becomes more powerful and more memorable to him. And so he's like his teacher. He's saying, I want you to do this as an exercise. Then we look at the meditations and we think, he's saying the same thing over and over again, using different imagery and different. Hang on a minute. He's doing that thing that Fronto told him to do in that letter.
0: Hmm. But he's
1: strangely, he's not, you know, this is a rhetoric tutor telling him to do that. But he seems to be doing something. Pretty much the same as that, but applying it to Stoic philosophy. So we don't know to what extent other Stoics did that, but uh, it's very intriguing that we actually have someone describing the method in a, a private letter to him. Yeah. So I would say he probably did sit down and pick out his favorite quotes. Look, a lot of people do that today. And uh, But he, he put a lot of effort into thinking, how would I phrase this differently? How would I paraphrase it so that it, it, it's even more catchy so that it resonates with me at an even deeper level. Because if I can put it in my own words, or if I can find more powerful words to express it, or if I can find an even better metaphor, then it will kind of stick in my mind even more deeply. The Stoics, for example, actually, here's a metaphor about the use of metaphors. So they talk about the guy that founded Stoicism, Zeno of Citium, was a Phoenician. And the Phoenicians were famous for trading uh, this purple dye uh, called imperial purple, or Tyrian purple. Hmm. So it was one of the most valuable commodities in the ancient world. It was used to dye the robes of kings and emperors. Yeah. and uh, But stoicism, right all the way down 500 years later, so stoicism in the ancient world, flourished for five centuries, from the time of Zeno to the death of Marcus Aurelius. Marcus is the last famous stoic that we hear about. So there are various metaphors about Zeno and dyeing things, purple, but Marcus keeps banging on about this as well. And so he says, I should be dyeing my mind deeply with the, the moral wisdom that I've learned from philosophers. So not just kind of superficially taking on these ideas like a sophist would think oh how can i make this sound cool what's going to impress an audience so marcus would be saying no it needs to penetrate into the very core of my own being like i need to think of this as a die that sets very deeply and very permanently mm. fixes properly you know and that was how he thought uh, about it and another cool metaphor that we find in, in stoicism is so the stoics would say the Stoics love these paradoxes. So they like to say that there's such a, th- a thing as true kingship. Seneca says the truest empire is to be emperor of yourself. And the Stoics believed that paradoxically, someone like Alexander the Great, you know, the most powerful uh, man in, uh, of his time, was like a slave in a sense. Whereas Diogenes the Cynic, who went around naked and lived like a beggar, was like a king by comparison because he'd conquered his own mind. And so Marcus says, you you know, you shouldn't be trying to dye your imperial robes purple. You know, it's not your outer garments that matter. Yeah. You know, rather you should be dyeing your mind metaphorically purple so that you become truly regal in the very core of your being. Uh, in the sense that the Stoics mean and what they mean by that is by that you should conquer your own passions and conquer your own mind and become like a a, a king or a ruler within your own uh, within the core of your own being so these these metaphors run all the way through the history of of stoicism and they kind of help to under help us to understand in a way what they were trying to do and when marcus is repeating things over and over again like that you know it's it's because he wants to dye his mind deeply with yeah. his ideas and transform his character
0: the consistency of practice the um, so do you do you feel that I mean he would have just plucked out quotes? Are you there? Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, Amy. I thought it just yeah. dropped out. Um, do do you feel he just you know picked on quotes that were relevant to, to the the experience he was having, or just picked out you know is that how he'd write his his philosophies and and deepen his um his thoughts?
1: That we don't well no we don't really know what triggered him to pick those quotes. So I don't think there's much indication. Again, you know, because he he, he doesn't really connect them to external events very clearly.
0: No, okay. Um,
1: They're kind of abstract. So that's interesting because we don't know. We don't know why he's picked those quotes. But some people have looked at, see, people have looked at the meditations in a lot of detail. And so some people have read the meditations and thought, oh, this guy sounds depressed because he's talking about death a lot. Hmm. And I think that, and most scholars agree, that's a very superficial reading because, in fact, the Stoics talk about those things um all the stoics talk about death it's a a psychological exercise for them it's not because he's depressed it's because he thinks that by meditating on his own death he'll learn to become more grounded in the present moment and to appreciate life more fully so it's an exercise he's engaged in nevertheless there are themes that we can detect in the meditations and one of them is anger so the ancient stoics Mm -hmm. were very interested in anger but it's one of the major themes. That, there are a couple of others, but dealing with anger is a major theme. Now, the very first sentence of the meditations says that he's grateful to his uh, paternal grandfather because he showed him what it means to be free from anger. That's the opening sentence. Hmm. And then later on, he one of the few points at which he kind of mentions his own internal struggle is, there are a couple of points but one of them is that he says that he's grateful that the at times when he was losing his temper that he never did anything that he might regret and he mentions that the interestingly the person that he used to lose his temper with the most was Junius Rusticus his stoic mentor which is very intriguing so yeah, he right. loved he loved Rusticus like so this guy that he loved the most also infuriated him because Rusticus would be very plain speaking, challenging him, yeah, really challenging him, kind of poking, like, questioning. Um, And so Marcus, obviously, probably when he was younger, I imagine, when he was a teenager, kind of lose his rag, lose his temper sometimes in response to that. And he also mentions that Rusticus showed him how to be reconciled with friends after you've had a quarrel with them. So this guy would... Often say really challenging things, and Marcus really struggled not to lose his temper. Um, but then Rusticus seems to have been really good at smoothing the, smoothing over the waters and, uh, mm-hmm. and you know r- repairing the damage that had been done as a result of an argument. But nevertheless, we can see Marcus acknowledging that he's got an anger problem, and throughout the meditations, he talks often about how to cope with anger and how to conquer it. So we don't really have good examples of specific other specific Mm. situations that he's responding to but it looks like throughout his career he made a real effort to overcome his anger and also from the outer story as far as the historians are concerned Marcus was known for being unflappable. Now, And unlike other emperors, for example, Hadrian was known for having a very short fuse and being potentially quite violent. Uh, But whereas Marcus was known for being very merciful and lenient and not really rising in the face of provocation. So although he talks about having this internal struggle, it kind of looks like he succeeded in conquering it. Hmm. At least that's one interpretation of, of what we see in the histories.
0: Well, he's he's obviously dealing with every day and a consistent practice to to cope with his anger and his temper. Yeah, other for a very long time.
1: Him as an angry guy, hmm. although he although he feels that this is a personal challenge for him, like he seems to have succeeded in not losing his temper with other people. Other people think he's surprisingly even-tempered.
0: How did he deal with like you know self-mentoring when he lost his his mentor and started writing letters to himself potentially? Um, other than you know journaling, how else did he you know review um, such philosophies and ideas uh, you know because you, you you talked about people in men in toga and sitting there and talking about philosophy um, was there any of that or was it you know was oh, it just yeah, purely journal
1: he went, he went to lectures I, I tell you one of the thing another weird little historical anecdote is we just a random comment on another author we know that somebody made fun of him once. Because Marcus, they bumped into Marcus in Rome, and they said, "Where are you going?" And he said, oh, "I'm going to attend the lectures of a philosopher." And to the, the Romans, this was hilarious. They they thought you you're too old, buddy, like to be going to lectures. And I suppose we still have a little bit of a trace of that today, but it seems like it was more of a thing to them that you know, once you are middle age or beyond, it was like a little bit odd to be attending. The lectures, even of of a a philosopher, like most of the audience Mm. would be fifteen year olds, you know, or or, you know, certainly young young men, Um, and so Marcus would have been a little bit out out of place in the audience, perhaps, but he was an eternal student. Right? So he, he was perfectly happy. He didn't care about the ridicule. Like He was perfectly happy to go and listen to lectures of all sorts of different philosophers throughout his life and to engage, to surrounded himself with philosophers that uh, gave him advice. But I'll tell you, maybe, I'm not sure if this is the kind of answer that you were thinking of, but just as an aside, in a way, the other thing he tells us that he does, or the histories tell us, is that he would visit the graves frequently, hmm. the tombs, of his deceased tutors. And also Romans had a household shrine, they had like, a, like a little shrine in their house, yeah. where they would have little statuettes of their ancestors or their family members or other people that were important to them, like their parents and stuff and their household gods. And Marcus had little statuettes of his tutors In Hmm. his household shrine. So today we might have photographs of people that we care about, but the Romans had little, maybe they had painted pictures, they also had little statuettes. And I think we can imagine Marcus spending time quite solemnly at this shrine contemplating uh, these deceased mentors that he had. You know, so not only writing, but I think there were probably times where he sat down in a kind of religious context, you know, that carried out these little rituals or ceremonies to honour their memory and uh, and meditate, you know, on the, on the significance that these people had for him. And just, you know, obviously, anyone that's read book one of the meditations will have noticed that the whole of book one is different from the rest. Because Marcus just, uh, it just consists of a series of... Um, uh, lists of the qualities that Marcus admires most in family members and tutors. So he's writing down these lists of the things that he most admires about Gineas Rusticus among others and Antoninus mm. Pius about his mother and about other people um, and so he's doing that in his his journal in the Meditations and then he's sitting down in front of the shrine burning incense, and looking at a little sculpture of these people and kind of you know, honouring their memory and contemplating his relationship with him. So again, it's if we visualise what his life was like, the stuff that he's writing on takes on a slightly deeper uh, resonance. It certainly becomes much more serious, much more profound.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you um, have any of these practices yourself? I mean, do you sit there? I mean, obviously you study um, the philosophy, but do you do you journal? Do you talk to others?
1: a journal and i gosh there's a whole bunch of things really when i wrote my first book on stoicism i tried to kind of list out all the different techniques i could find and there were mm. about eight they're about 18 right yeah so there are a lot of different stoic practices that people can potentially do so some of them i'll do in a kind of ad hoc basis you know as in when they, what it's are your the regular
0: order. practices
1: Regular practices, there are a bunch, right? So, first of all, there are kind of lifestyle things that modern Stoics do. So, I'll, I'll just rattle off a bunch of stuff, right? Which means I'm going to have to do a little bit of it without explanation. Yeah. So, I'll, I'll just, I'll just tell you though, right? So, modern Stoics, typically, myself included, will often, but not always, do things like intermittent fasting, cold showers. Like, often they'll pursue exercise in a particular way, um, so I tend to jump rope and, and do exercise and go for walks and things like that, you know, but I focus, like, often when Stoics do things like fasting and exercise and stuff, they're they're focusing not so much on the external outcome, like the, the fitness and so on, that's like a secondary goal, but the main goal is to develop self-discipline and strength of character, right, right. So there's a, a little bit of a different reason for doing it in a way, and then, um, usually in the morning, I'll picture... Uh, the day ahead and I'll kind of plan the things I have to do Mm. and I'll consider in advance what would happen if I allow negative emotions to guide me and then I'll imagine what would happen if I allowed reason and good judgment to guide me and then I'll kind of contrast the consequences like we tend to traditionally you imagine it as a fork in the road Right, it's called it used to be called the Pythagorean fork. The Stoics use this concept as well. And uh, so you sit down and you'd imagine, listen, imagine it's like a dichotomy. So imagine I just allow myself to get angry with this guy later on, and hmm. where that where that's gonna lead me off in one direction. And what would happen if I actually like allow myself to kind of question my anger and rise above it like and behave more rationally and more responsibly so that's going to lead me off in a, in a tangent in a slightly different direction and the, the key being that you'll, you'll imagine that those two paths are going to diverge more and more as time goes on right like so what would happen if I did that every day like and I consistently developed a habit of rising above anger and questioning it like, and responding in a more responsible way versus what happens if I get in a habit of allowing my anger to take hold of me like, and I get swept along by it like. mm. so that's what the Stoics want us to do, is to think about the consequences of these things and what would happen How long would they... you
0: spend on, on that sort of activity exercise?
1: It varies, like, um, I mean, I might might only do it for like a few minutes or 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 sometimes I might spend like 10 minutes or 15 minutes doing it. Hmm. And then in the evening, um, the Stoics describe this exercise that, again, comes from the Pythagoreans. They borrow it from this other school of philosophy. And uh, Seneca describes this in his book on anger. Epictetus describes it. Uh, Galen, who's Marcus Aurelius' court physician, describes it. Marcus himself doesn't describe this technique, but he must have been aware of it. So the Pythagorean golden verses says, do not allow your eyes to close at night until three times, thrice, you've reviewed the major events of the day. So mainly, for instance, one way of doing it we know is to think of the different people that you've spoken to throughout the day or the major activities of the day three times and then ask yourself three questions what did you do badly what did you do well and what did you neglect to do or what could you do differently next time so for each base. of
0: those three events
1: yeah like yeah. so for the major events of the day and then again that follows on from kind of you start off planning the day and also preparing for setbacks you see, I'm going to try and do the best that I can but I'm also going to be I'm also going to be willing to accept failure in advance like so the stoics call this a reserve clause you know i'm going to do my best but i'm not going to freak out if i don't succeed yeah right. you know yeah. I'm, I'm going to be i'm going to be prepared so like, i'm going to try really hard to pass this exam but i'm not going to freak out if i fail you know that's always a possibility that i'm prepared for in advance so i've got i also have a contingency plan I've got plan b as it were like i'm ready for it the stoics don't want to ever be in the situation of someone going i can't believe this is happening to me that's a, a, a kind of simple colloquial. The the Stoics think that's uh, that that's a sign of folly, right? And they think somebody who's really pursued personal development, some a wise man or woman, as they would put it, a sophos, isn't shaken by events like that. If someone mm. steals their wallet, they don't think, "Oh my god, I can't believe that's happened." They think, "Oh, these things happen sometimes. Like, I should have seen that coming." Yeah. Like they take things in their stride, like so. They are kind of they try and be mentally prepared for possible. Some people have asked me how would stoicism help us deal with the pandemic, and like, I love the the Stoics love paradoxes, and the paradox about that question is that the Stoics would tell us to have prepared in advance for the pandemic. Hmm. You know, which of co- which of course, you know, the the funny thing about the the pandemic or the str the odd thing about it is. And uh, everyone always mentions us in relation to Bill Gates, right? And uh, a bunch of other experts have been yeah. te- telling us for a really long time that it was only a matter of time before a pandemic happens.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah.
1: Uh, so yeah, we so we shouldn't all be running around acting like it's a, a huge surprise. We should have went, oh yeah, they told us this was going to happen one day. Why? Well, and here it is. Um, yeah. And the other thing the Stoics should say is this is an opportunity to prepare for other stuff that's going to happen further down the line and I do I do wonder if a lot of people don't really see it like that you know the majority of people are going to be, although this pandemic is really a terrible thing, and I think people underestimate in many ways how serious it is, yeah. I think that there's been a lot of downplaying of the severity of it. And I say that because I have an interest in health research because I, as a psychotherapist, I had to, had to study research methods at university yeah. for as part of evidence-based practice. So i I'm used to reading the, the research literature, the medical literature, and right out from the outset, it really seemed to me like politicians and the media... We're making a complete dog's breakfast of misleading people, you know, put, like and shamelessly putting a spin on the medical and scientific facts, you know. And I think one of the things we should learn from this is in the future, we we need to tell these people to shut up, like, to some extent, and allow the, the scientific experts, the medical experts, to have a more yeah, exactly. of a voice. They yeah. actually know what they're talking about. Um so, you know, like, it, it, you know, very late on, people start to realise, oh, yeah, the scientists were telling us this months ago. Like, and it turns out it was true. But they, yeah, so, um, so I'm rambling a bit. Now, there's there's but, definitely,
0: yeah. Um, yeah, there's definitely opportunity to, to be had um, out of the adversities that we face. to be
1: had. So now I'm going to say something that might shock some people. I don't. I don't really apologise for that. You know, like it, it, it's it, it's a harsh fact. Yeah. I think it has it has to be said. Right now, this pandemic is very serious because it's highly infectious, as far as we know. But the infection fatality rate is believed to be zero point six percent or thereabouts. Hmm. Right. So it affects it infects a very large number of people, but of those people, a relatively small percentage die. Nevertheless, that might mean that millions of people die as a result because those two th- because of those two things combined. However, yeah. we are really lucky, in a sense, that this virus isn't both highly infectious and has a much, much higher fatality rate. Yeah. like Ebola, which everyone has heard of has a 50% fatality rate. Like, so we could easily have been facing uh, a virus that ripped through society and killed half of the people that were infected, right? Be much worse. So this is bad enough, hmm. right? But in a way, we, we're lucky in a parallel universe... You know the the pandemic that struck when we weren't prepared for it was one that killed half the population. You know, so this is like we nature in a way has given us an opportunity to prepare. Yeah, so yeah. It's like, you know, and, and and I'm in no way making light of this. And like I say, I think politicians are and the media are, are have definitely, in my view, downplayed things far too much and trivialised the, the problem. N- nevertheless, you know, we we've got off lightly, relatively speaking. And, you know, one possible advantage of it is that when inevitably a more, uh, a a virus with a higher fatality rate comes down the pipe, hopefully next time round, we're going to be more prepared to deal with it. You know, so for instance, people might mask up earlier, like, you Mm. know, more precautions uh, and more money will be invested in, in having the infrastructure uh, in place to prevent the spread. People will take the public health advice more seriously, and things like that. So the yeah. Stoics would say, "Look, this is an opportunity, you know, to prepare. To ask yourself, what what else is coming down the pipe, and you know what you know what else do I need to prepare for? Also, you know, most people, and I have to be careful how I phrase this, right? I want to be clear about it. Hmm. Although this is a serious pandemic." Um, you know, like 99% of people are going to die from something else, right? It's not going to be this pandemic. It's probably not going to be this pandemic, but guess you're going to die, that's for sure, right?
0: Hmm. But you
1: might get hit by a bus or, you know, you're more likely to die of cancer or heart disease, right? Yeah. Than the pandemic, like, although the pandemic is going to kill a lot of people, Hmm. right? They, so we should be taking this as an opportunity. I think everyone is thinking about their own mortality at the moment, or many people are taking this as a, a signal, an opportunity to think about their own mortality. And hopefully that means that they're more prepared when the inevitable happens later in life, if that yeah. makes sense. I think, I think many people are very sheltered from death and so they kind of sail through life. And you know, like, I think for a lot of people, I watch and see, right, I could be wrong about this, but I really think that the pandemic, we all know that when people have a brush with death and they survive, then not always, but in many cases they'll say, you know, it made me rethink my I'm priorities in life. Mm. Right? Mm. Yeah. And, and certainly so I could I,
0: relate to that. I think I've felt a little bit of that.
1: Yeah. I wonder how many people during this pandemic, you know, although maybe they are, you know, they were ultimately perfectly safe and they, they sail through it, nevertheless have been forced to confront their own mortality. And maybe you know reappraised some of their values in life yeah um and maybe you know what often happens is you know when people do that they think now's the time maybe to sacrifice certain things that aren't necessary and seize the opportunity to make harder choices that might ultimately be more purposeful and more meaningful so Mm. i wonder how many people are going to quit their jobs and go off and become Artists, or you know, you know, the cliche
0: yeah, yeah, thing yeah. people
1: have to they go. I'm going to go and do something else. You know, I'm sick of I do
0: wonder if if people are, you know, using this as the opportunity for that. But I also feel that um, people are still looking at this probably because of the media hype of how much of an inconvenience it is to us and, you know, what we're missing out on that we're so used to the luxuries and, and all that sort of thing.
1: Do you know, I heard anecdotally, um, and I, I've heard this from my clients as well. You know, it'd be interesting. I think eventually we'll see some research on this but I, we'll say it's just an anecdote at the moment that there are a lot of people with severe mental health problems that s- appear to be saying that they actually feel better during the pandemic hmm. and I, I think there are a number of possible explanations for that but I'm that sure kind of we'll see sense. some research on it and we'll, 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 they'll dig down and they'll potentially find out some explanations as to why people might Feel better, and it—you know—again, it could be that just forcing them to question their values and their mortality has has le- led to them doing things that are more meaningful with their time, perhaps and taking also, the you unnecessary
0: know, pressure away of life.
1: Yeah, maybe you know, a, a lot of people maybe have taken the time at home to do spend more time with their family, hmm. to work on themselves and engage in personal development. There are people, I'm sure, that have just sat there smoking weed and playing computer games or whatever, you know, and maybe, I'm not yeah, I'm not disrespecting, like, you know, maybe doing things that aren't potentially that constructive, though. Uh, maybe they've just been sitting there watching TV and eating junk food or whatever, whatever their kind of, like, their vice happens to be that they're overindulging in. But there are, you know, I look out the window in Toronto, there's people jogging and doing Tai Chi in the park and, yeah. like, never before. You know, and so I think a lot of people are working on their self-discipline and their fitness. The, the My publisher at first, you know, like a lot of things in life, people think this could go either of two ways. So I think the publishing industry, were thinking maybe um, people are going to stop buying books. You know, may, maybe that, you know, like maybe people are going to stop reading. Like we don't really know what's going to happen. But we now know that book sales will shot through the roof. Yeah. Right. More people Which in retrospect. It. like like a lot of things in retrospect, it doesn't seem surprising. But, you know, when we were uh, at the beginning and looking forward, people weren't really sure which way it was going to go. But now we know, yeah, people read a lot more. And so maybe they're, you know, they're, they're learning things. And, you know, the, this time is actually changing them, you mm. know, and, and benefiting. I'm sure there are people there just sitting, you know, getting annoyed, indulging their bad habits or vices or whatever, killing their time. And then they can't wait to get back to work. But I think there are a lot of people during the lockdown who have changed for the better.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. You know. I definitely think we're going to see that and I think it's it's there's a shift happening at the moment with that too. So, you know, and a lot the of people stoicism, working from home and, and working less uh, and all that sort of thing.
1: They seem to have found that stoicism resonates with their experience. So there's a there's definitely an explosion of people now getting much more interested in, in Stoicism. And I, one of the other things that you, you kind of reminded me of is that the Stoics often recommend a kind of minimalism.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, it's not absolutely essential, but like the, it makes sense in terms of the Stoic philosophy. And I think a lot of people now are realising maybe they don't need to eat out in restaurants as often and, you know, maybe they don't need to spend as much money and go shopping and things. And they're maybe finding other things to do with their time mm. um, that are perhaps more fulfilling.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, I, I feel that some people and maybe, you know, I'd, I'd maybe even say our, our culture in general, perhaps, in some respects, might become less materialistic, like as a result of the the privation that's occurred due to to lockdown. Um, you know, like. But put, but
0: it'll also be it's an impact that. of the econo- economic changes too that I think will have have more of an impact on on that, perhaps yeah, than yeah, the actual yeah, pandem- I mean, pandemic.
1: That, that, yeah, and again, you know, I hate to be that bad news to people, but for what it's worth, I think that that hasn't even kicked in yet.
0: No, you no. know,
1: we're 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 at the beginning of this pandemic,
0: unfortunately. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and certainly, the epi- the social and economic consequences of it um, are are really you know still to come. Um, so we'll we'll see over the next probably more clearly over the next six months. Uh, what those uh, effects are going to be like for people—they're just beginning to feel it now. I think, yeah. uh, sad- sadly, but then also, you know, I think the uh, many of the things that people were—I know people, so many people are going to struggle—but um, there were also people probably spending money on doing things. Buying things, for, like entertaining themselves and things, in ways that I think they're beginning. I definitely, from speaking to people, one of the things they're telling me is that they're realising that they were kind of squandering their money before, and and they realised that they were kind of doing things that were weren't necessary. Like you know, they say, I hear people saying things. I realise I don't really need to eat out that much. I'm perfectly happy cooking at home."
0: Mm.
1: You know, they just needed a you know a bit of a, a jolt or a shake to reappraise things so by no means am i saying that this is a good thing but what i am saying is that even in the face of adversity sometimes there are positive aspects that that
0: the opportunities
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. It, people can come out of it stronger. It reminds me of in psychology, we all, we've all heard of post-traumatic stress disorder, but some people have maybe also heard of post-traumatic growth. So there's a body of literature that shows that when people experience trauma, for example, in the military, mm. that you know that they're not always traumatized by it, but in many cases they actually become more resilient as a result and grow mm. stronger. Like, and the, the pandemic's a little bit like that. You know, some people are going to be hurt really badly by it and they're going to struggle to get through it psychologically, financially, emotionally, yeah, relationships yeah. will break up. But some people, I think, are going to come out of this stronger and better people.
0: Yeah, but, I mean, as, as an individual and as a collective, we have that opportunity to take this, to, to grow from it mm-hmm. and become, you know, at the other side, better. So... It'll be interesting, Donald. I, um, Yeah, no, mate, appreciate your time coming back on for the second time and um, much more of an insightful look into Marcus Aurelius's life um, and, and as it relates to Stoicism as well. So uh, appreciate you sharing and I look forward to the graphic novel.
1: Yeah, that'll be out in about a year or so. And the, I should say the paperback of How to Think Like a Roman Emperor is coming out uh, pretty soon on the 4th of August, actually. Yeah, right. Like, so that, 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 that's, that's cheaper. Or you'll get that cheaper than the hardback was so yeah it's been a pleasure once again and uh, I, hope you're, I hope your listeners uh, enjoy the conversation
0: I'm sure they will have and guys check it out at thehiddenwide.com and you can reach out um, to Donald anytime I'll stick the links in the show notes so um, enjoy this episode and until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon